these new trends toward opening uh, far larger bands for unlicensed shared public access, as well as these dynamically shared bands, such as the Citizens Broadband Radio Service, taken together, we will have, I think, transformed what's perceived to be spectrum scarcity into spectrum abundance. Hello, this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Using our electronic devices without being tethered with a wire has become more mainstream. Expanding that wireless connectivity depends on the availability of spectrum and careful spectrum policy. Michael Calabrese, director of the Wireless Future Project at the New America Foundation, joins Chris today. They talk about the difference between licensed and unlicensed spectrum, uses for both, and how new approaches can optimize this valuable resource. Learn more about Michael's work at newamerica.org OTI. Now here are Chris and Michael digging into Spectrum and the wireless future. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Michael Calabrese, the director of the Wireless Future Project at the New America Foundation. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. This is uh, great to be uh, part of your podcast well, I'm excited to be talking to you. You've been in this space far longer than I've been working on community broadband. I think the the expertise you bring is is quite high. Um, but let's start with uh, you telling us a little bit about what is the wireless future and, and what kind of work do you do? My wireless future project is part of uh, New America's Open Technology Institute, which is really about um, you know all things open, open. <laughs> Open networks such as net neutrality, uh, open you know, open technology, open airwaves, and you know I focus on the wireless side. And for over a decade, we've been um, really promoting policies that will result in ubiquitous, high-speed, and affordable wireless connectivity for you know all Americans and hopefully globally as well. And and kind of at the forefront of that. It has been to open more spectrum for unlicensed access, that is, you know, shared public airwaves and also dynamic spectrum sharing uh, as an alternative to sort of the exclusive licensing that is what um, allows, you know, big mobile carriers like Verizon and AT&T to dominate uh, their industry segments. There's a, a lot of things that I want to jump in with. I think um, one of the ones that comes to mind is is a quick question, which is, you know, there's all these devices that people want to buy now are wireless um, increasingly. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people, myself included, are saying, look, the future is going to be wireless. But to get there, we need a lot of fiber as well, fiber optic connections. And I'm just curious if you can um, explain to the audience why that might be, if you agree with us. Oh, yes. I mean, that's... Uh... In, in, in fact, uh, you know, I wrote a, uh, a report maybe two years ago um, explaining why, why the wireless future that we envision, you know, must be built on a high-fiber diet. A- and the reason is that um, if you really want, you know, those three outcomes I mentioned, you know, uh, wireless connectivity for devices, you know, like smartphones, tablets, laptops, if you want all that to be available everywhere, high capacity, and especially if you want it affordable. You you can't do that over the expensive license spectrum 
and and through carrier infrastructure uh, because you have to pay through your nose. There's uh, bandwidth caps. There's high pricing, and so what, what what people are just almost naturally turning to is Wi-Fi, you know, as an alternative. And right now, I mean, I think most people don't even realize that uh, at this point, roughly 60% of all the mobile data traffic, all the all the um, broadband traffic that goes over mobile devices like smartphones is is not actually going over license spectrum through carrier towers. Um, it's going a very short distance, you know, 100 feet or so over unlicensed spectrum into a wireline network that's already been provisioned for other purposes, you know, for, you know, at home, at work, at Starbucks, uh, maybe a community network. Uh, and so that trend will increase because the more deeply we penetrate uh, fiber everywhere, the closer you'll always be to a wire and the more unlicensed and shared spectrum the public has access to, the more you know, ways that it can get into those wires over the air without relying on the, uh, on the carriers. One of the things that, that just came up in terms of licensed versus unlicensed is this uh, the really horrible train accident, uh, the Amtrak accident just north of Philadelphia. And you wrote an article, which is what reminded me that I really wanted to, to bring you on the show, along with uh, Patrick Lucy, who couldn't join us today, but is with the Open Technology Institute as well. And in it, you talk about how Amtrak had been delaying implementing some of the safety technology because they really wanted this licensed technology. And in fact, they could have been moving ahead with an unlicensed approach. So maybe you can just sort of explain the difference between licensed and unlicensed in in those terms. Well, what happened with, with Amtrak is that seven years ago, Congress mandated a safety technology called positive train control. This was part of the, you know, a railway safety act. It would automatically slow or stop a train once it exceeds a speed limit, such as ahead of the curve where the Amtrak train jackknifed off the rails north of Philadelphia. And, and positive train control is based on, you know, a series of um, beacons and sensors that, com- that where, where the train is, it's going communicates, you know, with the railway infrastructure and the safety infrastructure all along, you know, the railroad right away, you know, through wireless connections. So the question was, in implementing this, what spectrum, you know, in other words, what airwaves would the, the railroads use? And so they decided to ask for um, this extremely expensive uh, television band spectrum. Uh, a fairly small amount, but spectrum that is so prized that at you know that at the auctions um, that are scheduled for next year, the Federal Communications Commission expects that that the, that the wireless industry will pay roughly one and a half to two billion dollars for that much spectrum, and they wanted to have that just you know to connect along the rails. So Congress wasn't giving it to them. The FCC was prohibited by law to just give it away because the law requires that it be auctioned. And to be clear, the spect- this would be spectrum that only Amtrak would have and nobody else would be able to use under any circumstances, right? Right. This would be exclusively licensed spectrum, meaning that only one company could use it 
in, you know, at a given, in a given geographic area. So this license spectrum, you know, they really only needed it in, in a very specific place and not even at high power. It's just along the rail lines. And yet they were looking for this very expensive spectrum, you know, which is licensed over huge areas and which is, as I said, is probably cost, is probably valued at one to $2 billion uh, nationwide. So since the FCC was prohibited by law to just give it away to these private rail companies, the FCC's advice was, well, go to the secondary markets and negotiate, you know, leases or to purchase the licenses from other parties that hold this spectrum, you know, utilities and others. Um, so the, the, the freight railways formed a consortium and more or less did that. But Amtrak didn't have the resources and there's just a lot of problems with the secondary markets. Uh, so eight years later, they had just barely, uh, you know, gotten hold of the spectrum and still had not deployed the positive train control system that would have avoided the crash. Um, an alternative, you know, what we write about in the article is that increasingly industries like that, like utilities, healthcare uh, industry, and others, are uh, are finding that shared spectrum is much more plentiful and economic uh, for e even for critical uh, uses. So, for example, majority of, um, of wireless monitoring of patients, of healthcare patients, is done over unlicensed spectrum. And unlicensed spectrum is spectrum that's simply uh, bands of, of frequencies that are left open for shared public use at lower power. The, the U.S. leads the world by far in the deployment of smart grid and, and automated smart meters because they're using unlicensed spectrum rather than paying for that connectivity from mobile carriers. Um, and in industry after industry for inventory control and, and so on, there's an increasing move toward using this unlicensed shared spectrum. But the mentality remains you know, among some industries, and, and, and the railroads were <laughs> on that list, the mentality that they need to have exclusive licenses so that they have absolute certainty. But right now, it, you know, that spectrum is really not available except at extraordinarily high prices and often after long delays, as we saw in Amtrak's case. I think there's a good public policy question, which is, of the best spectrum that we have available, should we be devoting slices of it to just one technology when you could be sharing it? I mean, I come back to actually the the thing you started off with in noting that some 60% of our smartphone traffic goes over Wi-Fi. You know, I think if you went back 20 years ago and you told people, in 20 years, everyone's going to have these handheld devices, they're going to be able to communicate, they're going to be able to share thoughts with anyone in the world. And all of this is going to take place on just these narrow bands that we consider to be junk. <laughs> um, people would probably think you were crazy. That's, that's right. I mean, the, the sort of the old approach was command and control where, you know, each, each industry kind of came in turn and got their exclusive assignment of frequencies. And that's turned out to be very inefficient because all of the good spectrum, you know, the stuff that, that will travel fairly long distances or will, you know, penetrate through obstacles um, is assigned to someone. Um, and most of it's not being used very intensively. Technologies change, industries evolve, and yet all the old assignments are still there. 
So as a result, um, policymakers uh, have have been moving away from exclusive licenses toward a new framework based on flexible use and, and shared access to spectrum bands. This is where we actually have just had action from the Federal Communications Commission um, regarding uh, something I think you know you and I are both pretty excited about, this citizens band. Um, why don't you tell us what's going on there? Oh, sure. Yeah, so this is like a whole, a whole other path toward broadband abundance. Um, one is, you know, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Wi-Fi. So, you know, Wi-Fi grew up on these junk bands, on this unlicensed spectrum that was originally set aside for things like cordless phones and microwave ovens. Wi-Fi has become so prevalent that even the, even the Wi-Fi bands are getting, you know, crowded. Uh, but there are other much larger bands of spectrum, particularly those uh, being used by the federal government, uh, the military in particular, where most of the capacity is unused. And so if you have, instead of exclusive use, if you have sh- dynamic sharing, you can unlock that capacity and potentially create bandwidth abundance. And that's what's happened now. Um, a few years ago, um, I, I was actually part of this uh, process to uh, write a report for the uh, President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, the PCAST. And in 2012, they recommended to the President in a report um, that there could be a spectrum, a shared spectrum superhighway across more than 1,000 megahertz of just federal bands of spectrum if it was all opened up for dynamic sharing. And, and they recommended that this could be done, like working around the incumbents, like military radar and other federal uses, um, by using a, a geolocation database system and, in some cases, sensing. Um, this was called the spectrum access system. And that there could be different tiers of access where the incumbent users, the federal agencies, they would be protected from interference uh, but you'd have opportunistic access by anybody else, essentially unlicensed access, as well as the option to have some priority access licenses that would be that could be sold or, or auctioned uh, for short-term use uh, for particular industries, maybe by Amtrak. At the recent Freedom to Connect event in New York City that uh, David Eisenberg put on, uh, Milo Medine uh, from Google gave a presentation in which he was talking about the sharing, and he noted that there are bands that are reserved just for the landing system on aircraft carriers and that you don't have a whole lot of aircraft carriers in Kansas City, so <laughs> they would be able to use some of that spectrum without a threat. And and if I understand it correctly, you have, you, you'd have you have some people that would um, uh, be paying for a priority access, and um, that would be on a dynamic basis, basically on a sort of, um, is it by like five-minute blocks? Or I'm just, I don't understand how it really works um, uh, at that level of detail. And in fact, it's funny because Milo and I drafted the uh, the chapter on uh, you know for the PKS report on, on on how this on how this could work, and Milo's exactly right because this Navy band was the one that the PCAST recommended be the first uh, to be opened up for this um, you know dynamically shared model, 
which the FCC adopted last month, and it's called the Citizens Broadband Radio Service. And, and, and what it does is there's 150 megahertz of spectrum that's mostly uh, dedicated to the Navy, but they only use it offshore. Right, and, and 150 is an incredible amount, right? Oh, yeah, that's about as much or more than any, you know, uh, of the national mobile carriers have, you know, for their networks. And, and this would be now available for, for shared use. Th- th- there will be a passive sensing network um, set up, some sensors set up along the coastline to detect if a ship comes close to shore using its ra- with its radar on. If it does, the, the devices will be told to get off, you know, that, those particular channels that the ship is using. But other than those situations and across the entire inland part of the country, that 150 megahertz will be available all the time. And it will be available, mo- a majority of it, 80 megahertz of it all the time for unlicensed use. They're calling it general authorized access, <laughs> was the FCC's term for it. But then there also will be as much as 70 megahertz available for priority access licenses or PALs. And what these are are 10 megahertz licenses that um, companies could acquire for, um, they're essentially three-year non-renewable licenses, which is much shorter term. Today, licenses are, are wide area they're typically for eight or 10 years and they're automatically renewable. These would be non-renewable, would be shorter, much shorter term and are for much smaller land areas. The PCAST actually recommended much more of a Google ads, ads market approach <laughs> where essentially it would be like a spot market. That's what I was thinking, right? That's what I was, yeah, yeah, I was thinking ex- of. Exactly, like, like, you, like the idea was that if a, like if a hospital campus needed to know that, that they had quality of service for some particular use, they could go in and just buy, essentially you'd pay for interference protection in just a, a very small area where you really need it. But the FCC thought that initially that was too difficult to administer. So what they've, they sort of jerry-rigged the traditional system <laughs> to make the license areas very small, the, the license terms very short and non-renewable. Um, eventually, though, once I, I think once the spectrum access system proves itself, that we will we will end up with a Google AdWords type of you know auction system where you just get you know the rights for the for the short time and place you need it. So there's so much more that detail that that I'd like to go into, but I want to keep this at a, a reasonable length. And um, I'm curious, a lot of us envision a future, or, or we want to envision a future, where neighbors can get together, um, or entire neighborhoods, and build a wireless network um, with off-the-shelf parts um, that uh, would not be very difficult to to build. And and we've been hoping that some of these uh, spectrum, uh, these new spectrum approaches would enable that. Is is that the kind of thing you think we can hope to move toward? Well, I think these these new trends toward opening uh, far larger bands for unlicensed shared public access, as well as these dynamically shared bands, such as the Citizens Broadband Radio Service, taken together, we will have, I think, transformed what's perceived to be spectrum scarcity into spectrum abundance. 
meaning that, you know, for communities, there will be plenty of wireless capacity there that will be free for the taking. And then it just becomes a question really of um, the equipment and the, in a sense, what you might call the business model. It's really interesting. I think many people assume that the, the main obstacle is um, spectrum because they see, for example, there was an auction in January this year that raised a record of $41 billion for about 50 megahertz of spectrum for about for about a third of what the Citizens Broadband Radio Service is opening. So the assumption is that it's spectrum that's scarce, but spectrum isn't scarce at all. Less than 20% of the best spectrum is even in use. So once we open it up for this dynamic sharing and have more unlicensed, more opportunistic access, spectrum won't be the obstacle, but there will still be challenges as far as getting equipment on a scale you know, that makes these sort of networks affordable and then getting the political will, you know, to to put them in place. Right. I think some, that's something sometimes people may not have realized, which is one of the reasons Wi-Fi is so successful is because there's such a large market for it. And uh, if device makers aren't convinced there will be such a large market, then they're not going to be um, developing the machines, uh, the technology in the right way to enable that outcome. Right. Right. Yeah. What Wi-Fi is premised on the economics of the internet, in effect, where the investment is at the edge, you know, by individuals, and it's all very incremental and affordable. So just as you know, you expand the internet every time you attach a new server in a new location. Uh, you know, Wi-Fi is similar because you attach a router uh, to a wireline connection. And, and then broadcast connectivity. So what's really um, going to be needed in the future is just, is just to try to extend the logic and the affordability of Wi-Fi to these community networks so that instead of, um, you know, instead of separate hotspots, you have uh, true, you know, in a sense, hot zones of, <laughs> of, of mesh networking. Um, and, and there are examples of that. I mean, we, you know, our Open Technology Institute has been working with communities to um, build out these networks in uh, some low-income areas in Detroit and Philadelphia and Brooklyn. Um, and Mayor de Blasio in New York uh, is working um, with us on this new, a new uh, RISE program, which uh, it's also based on neighborhood resiliency, where... Um, uh, where they were going to be um, working with them to build out community Wi-Fi networks that can withstand a hurricane, because that was the initial effort in Red Hook, uh, part of Brooklyn. Um, so these are all really exciting developments, and hopefully as, as communities realize that the spectrum is there for the taking, um, that there will be more, more efforts like that. And I think we end up back where we started with, uh, you know, there's a lot of promise for future spectrum as long as we continue to see the federal agency, uh, the, F the Federal Communications Commission manage it correctly. Um, but communities should be preparing by getting fiber deep into their neighborhoods so that they can mm -hmm. make sure they have a lot of uh, areas where they can connect these nodes and, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, and also by opening opening their public fiber because, you know, many communities have fiber that's 
that's been put down for various public purposes, INETs, school nets. Right, traffic signals, uh, all kinds of things. Right, and, 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 if, and, you know, and often there's excess capacity there. And if that was, if that was you know, open, it would spur not only more community networks, because, you know, as we said earlier, you know, Wi-Fi and a high-fiber diet is much more potent, right? You know, as long as you're close to, uh, to the waterline backhaul and that's, and that's fairly inexpensive, um, you, can, you can put a cloud of connectivity over, over a neighborhood. So more fiber, more fiber, more fiber access to it will have more spectrum. Um, so the, the pieces are coming together. We just need to uh, find, you know, in a sense, the right, the right recipe to navigate around the, the economics and the politics. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk with us about these issues. Yeah, thanks, Chris. This was, this was great. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. If you use Facebook, be sure to like our Community Broadband Networks page. Thank you again to Person for the song Blues Walk, licensed through Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.